We are, for our sermon series, going through the letter of 1 Peter, kind of stepping verse by verse or section by section. And here in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you see it in your bulletin, you notice uh, he's talking to Christian slaves. I've heard people make the claim before that um, first century Roman slavery wasn't as bad as 18th or 19th century American slavery. And maybe you've heard that said before uh, as well. And that's just simply not true. It's not, it was different. But uh, they were were both just about as degrading a a state that a person could possibly live in. It was different. So what we do know about first century slavery is you were not enslaved by virtue of your skin color. It wasn't on the basis of supposed racial superiority or inferiority. Most people, many were captured as prisoners of war and made slaves by their conquerors. Some were made slaves because they were convicted of a crime, and part of your, the sentence of your crime, you might be sentenced to as a galley slave rowing in a boat on the Mediterranean Sea. Some people were enslaved kind of as an indentured servanthood, as a way to pay off for a period of time your existing debts. Most were the children of slaves. They were born into slavery. So it wasn't based on racial considerations. The Romans would happily enslave anybody. One of the key places where the two, American slavery and Roman slavery, differ is its duration. Normally, in the Roman Empire, you were not a slave for for your whole life. I read some scholar that actually wrote this. I don't know if it sounded a little fishy to me, but maybe he knows better than I do. The average time a slave would remain in that state in the first century was 10 years, which given that their lifespan was considerably less than ours, was still a lot of time. But 10 years. 10 years because they could often purchase their own freedom. 10 years because they worked professional jobs. Your slaves in the Roman Empire were your lawyers. They were your uh, collegiate professors. They were your government employees. And they were your administrators. So they were paid usually a reasonable wage. The, the one place where slavery then in, in America differed the most was that slaves could own their own slaves, which sounds completely weird to us. But you have to understand, nobody thought that the institution of slavery ought to be abolished. I mean, not even the slaves believed that. You could be slave Marcus, who was a slave in the home of a wealthy Roman equestrian family, And you could be the professor at a local university. And you could own five slaves of your own who were working in your household. Nobody thought that that was strange, even though for us it sounds absurd. Well, in this section that we have before us this morning, if you believe in what God says about every human being uniquely made in his image, then, of course, the abolition of slavery needs to be a priority. I'm not going to make the case this morning that Christianity is what ended up overturning slavery and the slave trade. It was. It was the, that's how it happened. But what Peter is actually saying is that slavery doesn't have to be abolished for you to 
actually live a holy life. In this section, he's continuing what he said in the very one, uh, the previous one, that Christians are to live submissive lives to whatever form of authority is above them, be it the Roman Emperor Nero and terrible government, or in this case, harsh masters who, um, who have their slaves underneath their thumb. We are still able to live holy lives in service to the Lord Jesus, no matter those circumstances. Verse 18, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I know that there's differences between the employee-employer relationship in the 21st century and the slave-master relationship in the first century, but it, there's a, the analogy has some usefulness. I mean, if Peter could command them to do the much harder thing, to submit to a harsh master who has way more power and control over their lives than our bosses have over ours, if he could command them to do the much harder thing, then surely we can do the, the lesser thing, which is to submit to bad management, <laughs> who we're under all the time? Verse 19, For it is commendable if a man or a woman bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he or she is conscious of God. That's commendable in God's sight. Verse 20, But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating in doing wrong, if you do wrong and yet endure the beating? But if you suffer for doing good, and you endure it. This is commendable before God. So what he's basically saying is that the kind of suffering he's calling us to is, is not the self-inflicted suffering of being foolish and doing bad things, and, but it's the suffering for, for the sake of doing good in the service of the gospel. Verse 21, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. As it says in Isaiah 53, he committed no sin and and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the trees so that we might die to sin. And live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I'm looking forward to this upcoming Saturday. Ravi Zacharias, who a number of us are big Ravi fans. He's going to be speaking at the Idaho State Prayer Breakfast to be held on Saturday morning at the uh, Boise Center on the Grove. I've been listening to Ravi for a bunch of years, but I've never heard him in person. He's going to come in. I guess the prayer breakfast is sort of based on the presidential prayer breakfast in D.C. where you you get a famous speaker who comes in. Ravi's a captivating speaker if you've never heard him before. And like all captivating speakers, it's like they have so many stories that they can pull out of their back pocket and just bam, bam. A, a powerful story that just always brings their audience in. Well, one of the stories I remember him telling about Christian suffering 
unjust suffering and, and non-retaliation, it, uh, well, it was a couple years ago, and it goes like this. He had a professor friend at the university, at the Islamic University in Malaysia, which turns out it's the, one of the oldest universities in the entire world. It's one of the oldest universities in Islam. It's almost in, entirely, as you'd kind of expect, Islamic. Well, they were hosting a speaker, um, a Muslim apologist by the name of Ahmed Didat. Didat was kind of an infamous speaker, known for being highly vitriolic. I mean, if you think of some of the inflammatory language that the Shah of Iran has had made has made in the past about Jews, that's kind of the way that Ahmed Didat would speak. He loved to mock his opponents. He loved to, in his presentation of Islam, to give an aggressive harangue against Christianity. And that's what he was doing in this the speech he was delivering at the Islamic University in Malaysia, he was talking about how Christianity is a ridiculous religion, how nobody could possibly live by the tenets of Christianity. Well, Ravi's friend, his name was Dr. Lee, is Dr. Lee. During the question and answer session after the speech, he rose up to challenge a falsehood that was that Didat made... Uh, there's some false claim that he made during his presentation. Didat saw him in the audience, and he says, are you a Christian? Well, come up here onto the stage with me. Dr. Lee complied. You see this man who is a Christian? His, re- his religion is, is ridiculous. And what Didat did next is he, with all of his strength, with all of his power, he just he slaps Dr. Lee right across the face. Hits him so hard that Dr. Lee nearly falls down. And then he says, now turn to me the other cheek. As though that, you know, it's entirely nonsensical that a Christian would be abused and, and live with that. Dr. Lee was trying to get his senses back. And uh, he, as he's shaking off the blow, he looks up and D-Dot says to him, we can do this much faster Give to me your shirt. Since in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that if some, anybody asks you to lend to them, do so freely without expecting any repayment. Dr. Lee starts to unbutton his shirt, and he takes it off, and he hands it to him. And according to Jesus, you should now offer your trousers too. Professor Lee turns to the audience of his colleagues and fellow students. He apologizes to them. And then he loosens his belt and he takes off his pants. And in in stunned silence, he walks out of the lecture hall in his underwear. He walks back to his office. You can imagine the swirl of emotions that must have been going through his mind at that minute. And the shame uh, to, to be, there you are, disrobed in front of all of your colleagues and students. He walks back into his office. He puts his hands, his hands to his face and he just begins to weep. Not understand why am why why did this happen, Lord? Was I was I right in what I did? There's a knock at his door, and he opens the door of his office, and there are all of his colleagues lined up, and all of the students there to apologize for the shame he had to bear, and to thank him for the for the bravery of his witness. Amadidat was a. 
He was a very proud, angry, vitriolic man. And he was left standing on the stage with Dr. Lee's shirt in his pants. What a powerful picture of the gospel. Uh, Into this mighty Islam that slapped around the Christians. Boko Haram, which slaughters the Christians. And we turn the other cheek. You say, well, yeah, I get that. Um, When the, the spotlight is on you and you're standing up on the stage, maybe it's relatively easy to turn the other cheek. But the kind of provocations that I deal with day to day in the office with my my boss or the types of aggravations that I deal with day to day in my marriage are, are the are the little slights and injustices where it, it just keeps chipping away at me. These small nagging mistreatments and injustices that keep chipping piece by piece off of me. How how do we in the face of those types of provocations? Because we're not going to stand on the stage, most likely, but we do face those provocations. How, how do we turn the other t- cheek and not retaliate? Peter tells us how. So look with me in verse 23. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, what does it say? Instead... He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What does it mean for us to entrust ourselves to the judge? I think this is what it means to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. It means to say, Lord, I know that you're going to make this right someday and somehow. Lord, I know you're going to make this right, and therefore I don't have to take matters into my own hands because I... I know that you're going to make this right someday and somehow. Whatever the aggravation the Christian has suffered, whatever the injustice we've been put through, whatever, God has a perfect knowledge of what that thing is. And in fact, his knowledge of it is so much better than your knowledge of the same event. I mean, your knowledge is is biased because it's seen through your own eyes, but, but the judge is able to perfectly see what it is that you have gone through. He knows exactly what has happened, and therefore, he knows exactly what is deserved. He he knows how to make it right. He knows he's the judge of all the earth. He knows how to, to bring about the right judgment, does he not? One of the most amazing, amazing passages on this topic is found in Matthew chapter 8. You don't, I'll just... Up there in my Bible, you can turn there if you want. But it's Matthew chapter 8 is the story, and it's told in the Gospels of Mark, Luke, and Matthew. It's the story of the Gerizim demoniac, demoniacs, because Matthew describes two of them. Remember that story? Jesus sails with his disciples across to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and there, as they embark off of the boat, they, are, they encounter two men who are just crazy. They're madmen walking out of a cemetery that was close to the seashore. Uh, Matthew says that these men had terrorized the region for so long that no one considered it safe to walk down that area anymore. And when they see Jesus Christ, they, they scream out at the top of their voices, 
They screamed, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted, have you come here to torture us? It's not the appointed time. What's the time they're talking about? Isn't that weird? You have these two cagey demons who are yelling at Jesus saying, it's not the time for judgment. That's what they're saying. So they request of him. There's a, a herd of, do you call them? That's not a herd of pigs. What do you call that? <laughs> what do you call a big group of pigs? There, there's a gaggle of pigs on the hillside. <laughs> and they ask him to please send us in. Let us live in the pigs. And Jesus casts them. He exercises the demons. He casts them into the pigs. And they run down the hillside and drown themselves. You clearly have a situation that needs fixing. You have two men who have who terrorized an entire area. There, there's a situation that needs to be rectified, and Jesus rectifies it. But he only rectifies it partially because it's not the time. It's not the time for everything to be put right by the judge of Heaven and earth. And I think that's our biggest struggle, isn't it? You and I don't disagree with the fact that God is judge and we are not judge. We're, we totally check that box intellectually. But what we really struggle with is the timing of the judge to fix things and make things right. You know, why, why am I going through this? Or why, am I, you know, why aren't you acting on my, my behalf? Why aren't you vindicating me? Don't you see I'm suffering unjustly? Why? It's the mystery of his timing. We grow impatient with this timing, and that's one of the reasons why we take matters into our own hands and we fight back. We, if we're cursed, we'll just curse you right back, buddy. If you, if you put a knife into me, I will take it out and engage in a knife fight with you. To entrust yourself to him who judges justly means that you have got to entrust yourself into the mystery of his timing and live with all of the the limbo associated with the time between the times that we live in. I know this. I'm very glad that God did not bring about the judgment day in 1980. How many of you are glad that he didn't bring judgment day in 1980? How many of us would still be, yes, how many of us would still be dead in our trespasses and sins in 1980. That would be true of me. I mean, there are a lot of different reasons why God delays the time for judgment. But one of the most important ones is, is that he's, he, he desires every man to come to repentance. He desires none to perish, but all to have. He delight, delays judgment out of love for people. Maybe you can remind yourself that when you feel deeply aggravated. It's not the time. That's verse 23. In verse 24, I love this passage of scripture because when I was in college, I wrote a really, it was a bad song, it was a cheesy song, but I wrote a song to this, and you remember that song, honey? (laughs) I did. Yeah, so um, this is a very dear passage of scripture for me. We read in 24, look there. He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. It is by his wounds 
that you're healed. I, what I want to quickly talk about is his bearing our sins in his body. You may not be guilty of this misunderstanding, but I've heard a lot of Christians, they misunderstand what it means that Jesus you know, carries or bears our sins on the cross. A lot of people think that, that Jesus sort of actually becomes sinful on the cross. Jesus actually becomes a murderer. Jesus actually actually becomes an adulterer. And what they're not understanding is the Bible's teaching of the forensic nature of Jesus' death. There is a forensic nature to uh, forensic is not a very common word <laughs> that we use, but if you look it up in the English dictionary, you'll see that it means legal or judicial. There's a forensic nature to Jesus' death. In other words, Jesus' death isn't just merely a good example for us to follow of, non, of non-retaliatory suffering, but his, his death bears a legal price. And here's the way that I wanna, um, how I want to illustrate it. Suppose that the IRS decides to come after you because they're going to take you down. You owe a whopping sum of money, which it's tax season. Maybe that's on your, on your mind. You owe a tremendous amount of money, a, a debt that you could never possibly begin to pay. But at the very last minute before the IRS barges down your door, uh, a friend of yours walks in and she says, I'll tell you what, I am worth exactly what you owe, and I will pay it. The IRS is, is like, fine. We don't care. If that's how you want to do it, great. Just so long as you're worth exactly what he owes, they go over to her house and they calculate her net assets. She's worth exactly what you owe, which means they start to take the paintings off of the walls in her house. They start to take the jewelry from around her neck. They start to take the furniture out of her house. They start to take the house itself. They throw her out on the street because she's worth exactly what you owe. Even though she is righteous in regards to the the tax law, so to speak, she becomes legally unrighteous in your place. And all of your liabilities are transferred to her, so she's exactly what you owe, and it means she's ruined. And you're given a new lease on life. You are like Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning. <laughs> you, you are rich again. You, there's a reason. Okay, here's where I'm going with that analogy. When you get slapped across the face by Ahmed Didat, how are you going to resist? How are you going to resist hitting back? When I'm one of those people that needs eight hours of sleep pretty much every night, and if I get nine, that's nice, and ten is even nicer. When I am sleep-deprived, when I am working from a sleep deficit, and Ahmed Didat slaps me across the face, I tell you, I'm ready to punch him in the nose because I'm in a deficit. When I am... When I am sick and I've been laying in bed for a long while and Ahmed Didet slaps me across the face, I'm not going to react well because I'm really operating at a deficit. If I'm just dealing with lots of anxiety, be it financial anxiety, it's going to be very, very hard for me to turn the other cheek. If you, 
if you are treated maliciously, maliciously mistreated, you are never going to follow the Jesus example if you're operating out of a deficit. If you're bankrupt, you will never have the internal resources necessary to resist the impulses for revenge. And you know it when you are... um, When you're treated cruelly, the the, the anger feels so justified inside of you. It it feels so pure almost. It feels so right for me to just lash back out. And I'm convinced the only way that we will ever be able to refuse punching his lights out is if we're rich by the cross. (laughs) If we're forensically rich. I was listening to a megachurch pastor in North Carolina this week. And he was making a great point about Christians and their Bibles. He said to his congregation, If I offered you $500,000 to never touch the Bible again, to never read the Bible again, never hear the Bible, talk about the Bible, or even think about the Bible again, would you accept that deal? He said, well... I'm guessing you would say no. I know I wouldn't do that. But then, if that's the case, you have just identified the Bible as an asset that is worth more than $500,000 to you. And his point was, then how in the world can your Bible sit on the shelf and and gather dust? Do you know of any other $500,000 asset that you completely ignore? By the same token, if I offered you a million dollars Never to think about the cross anymore. Never to talk about the cross. Never to uh, apply the cross. Hopefully you would say, go pound sand. Because the cross is is more precious to me than anything else in the world. Well then, how how can we let the cross gather dust on our shelf and not apply the message of the cross, the message of our richness to our, our interpersonal relationships? Finally, verse 25, I'll close with this one. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer. What does it mean that he's an overseer? (laughs) The shepherd and overseer of our souls. Now you've returned to the one who's watching out for you. I don't need to tell you that this world is a a world full of tears. I mean, think how many tears were shed by a first century Christian slave. Think of the list of potential abuses that uh, a first century slave, uh, I don't, I won't even, I won't even say. I've read the histories and it's terrible. Think of the number of tears that would be shed by a 17th century and 18th century Christian slave. Think of the the outrage of oppression, treachery, cruelty, hatred, malice, torture, genocide, slavery. That's really the history of this world. That that could fill so many volumes. The the, the sheer ugliness of, of it all. I realize when Jesus tells you here to turn the other cheek, he's asking you to do something that is just humanly nearly impossible because of the the sheer enormity of the evil in the world. Unless you realize that God is your overseer, 
And he has watched it all. He knows it all. And he's looking out for you. The scripture promises, I think it's Psalm 56, that God has stored up all of the tears of his saints in a bottle and he has never lost track of any of our tears. That's what it means for him to be our overseer. You and I, we cry so much, we lose track of all those tears. But no, God himself catalogs them all. And Psalm 56 goes on to say that he will right every wrong, he will dry every tear, he will set every bone that has been broken, he will heal every wound, that nothing will be left out or left over when the judge of all the world finally makes things right. Brothers and sisters, can you believe that? Do you believe that? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ tells us it's so. We're called to believe it by faith. May God, by his grace, enable us to believe it by faith. Amen.